So most of you know I wasn't here last week. I was back in Kansas at my dad's memorial service. And, uh, and so this morning, I'm just going to kind of give you a heads up. You guys are going to be my therapist this morning. And uh, I'm not paying you, but uh, you're going to be my therapist because uh, it's been 21 days since my dad passed away. And I don't think I've fully processed it all. And, uh, and so I just thought, hey, it's going to be really good for me to talk about it this morning. And you're like, why did we come here today? But I'm kind of joking about that. But to, to some extent, I do. I kind of want to tell you a little bit about, about our experience back in Kansas. Because my, my dad was my, he was my hero. He was my high school football coach. And, and he affected a lot of lives. At, at the service on Friday, it was overwhelming. We, we got there about 9.30. And the visitation was supposed to start at 10. And by 9.45, the place was packed with people. I mean, they filled up, I don't know how many people, I mean, it was close to a thousand people filled up this, this place, and it was an amazing time. And then after that, after the service, we went to um, th- this place where some guys had gotten a, a meeting hall, and there was like four to five hundred people there of, of my relatives, of ex-coaches, of, of ex-players of my dad. And, and for four hours, imagine this, four hours of fat, out-of-shape ex-high school football players telling stories about, about their coach and about their experience. And yet nobody left. We were there the whole time and it was, it was so good. I want to show you a picture, a couple pictures of it. These are, these are the coaches that were there. And, uh, and so th- these are just a few, and there's so many coaches that coach with them over, over the years. A lot of them have already passed away or live out of state, but that, there's the coaches. The next one, these are the players that were just at the post reception, and they didn't all fit because we were all too wide and too big to get in there. I tried, I'm on the front row. I tried to get in the back, but they told me short people had to go in the front, so... So as short people, we lined the front row there, but, uh, but it was such an, an amazing experience just to kind of go through that and, and process that. And so, so we went from hearing about my dad on, on Sunday morning, January 8th, and for you that were here that morning, I, I, I found out that he had passed away during the night from my mom, and I'm crying, and my mom, my mom is the opposite of me. She doesn't cry very easily. I got my dad's emotions and, and she was like, Chris, you've got a service to do. You've got to, you've got to go do it. And I was thinking, how am I possibly going to do a service this morning? And as I drove in, I heard the song that we sang by Matt Marge, just Lord, I need you. And, And in that song, it says, when I cannot stand, I'll fall on you. And man, I hung on to that that morning, and, and somehow I was able to preach that, and I could also picture my dad saying, quit crying, get your butt up there, and do what you have to do. I, there's kind of the, both of those things happening, but, uh, but I made it through it, and then I, my dad asked me to do his service, which at first I was like, no way can I do your service over and over, but he, my dad was a pretty persistent guy, so I said yes, and here we are at the, the service, and all these people are there, and I became overwhelmed out in the lobby seeing all these people I hadn't seen in 30 plus years, and, and experiencing all that, knowing I had to get up and talk about my dad, I literally began to feel lightheaded like I was going to pass out, and, and I began to think of that song, when I cannot stand, I'll fall on you, and and. In that, I went back, I found a room to sit in, and, and my brothers and I got up, and we, we did the service. My brothers cried like babies. I was, it was embarrassing, because I, 
I never cry. I cried a little bit, but I got through it. I got through it, and, and, uh, but it was difficult, but it was good, and it was an honor. And, and I look at that, and, and I go, man, so often in, in my life, I, I'm a pastor. People look at me, and they go, well, you got it all together, right? You, you, you can figure this out. You, you can handle it, and you've got a nice family and a great church, and you've got all this. And so and a lot of times I feel that, that, man, I've got to have it all together. But over the last, over the last 21 days, over and over, I realize I can't do it. <laughs> I can't hold it together. I need God. I need Jesus in my life more than ever. I need him. Yeah, we try to figure it all out. We try to, we try to put on a good face, but in all reality, we need him. And this week, I'm reading a story that Jesus told. And, and, and in that story, he talks about two men that both needed Jesus Unfortunately, only one of them realized that they needed Jesus. And I, I want to look at that story today. It's titled, Just the Religious Man and the Sinner. And this is what it says. It's in Luke chapter 18. And here's the story that Jesus tells. It says, Then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned or looked down on everyone else. It says, Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not like other people, cheaters, and sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like the tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give you a tenth of my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh God, be merciful to me. For I am a sinner. I tell you, the sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So many times I have read this, I have preached this from the viewpoint that I couldn't possibly be the Pharisee. I'm, I'm like the tax collector, right? I, I'm not a Pharisee who, who you know, thinks that they're all great, but I, I think this week as I read through this, probably, probably honestly for the first time, I've looked at it from a different view that, you know what, I think from time to time we are all like the Pharisee, <laughs> that we all kind of look around and go, well, I'm doing pretty well. I got things together and I, I don't sin like those people sin. And, and we kind of, we have this ability as human beings to compare ourselves to those around us. Now, when Jesus told this story back in his day, the people listening probably knew this story from an Old Testament story. And the Old Testament story was pretty popular in Jesus's day. They, they told it a lot. They would have known it if they went, if, if they were part of any religious circles. And it was found in Isaiah 66. And what happens in Isaiah 66 is you have two men that are making sacrifices at the temple. And one of the men brings a lot to the sacrifice, and God rejects him. Another man, he brings a little bit to the sacrifice, and the men, the people, reject him. 
but God accepts the sacrifice. And so you can see the similarities here. you got these two people going to worship. Uh, one of them doesn't have much, and yet something about their heart, God accepts it. And the other one, in their arrogance and pride, God rejects. And it's, it's interesting, when we read these things, we usually think, oh, that doesn't apply to me. We tend to have a hard time putting ourselves into stories as the villain. When you're watching a, a movie, you don't, you don't so I'm the villain, that, that's me. No, you're, you're the good guy, right? And, and so as human beings, we tend to do that. It's hard to put yourself into a, a story or, or a parable that Jesus tells and go, oh, well, I'm the one that he's talking to here. But I think we need to look at this today from an honest viewpoint and go, where are we? Who are we? in this story. And, and why did Jesus tell the story? Well, he tells us right off the bat. Then Jesus told the story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned or looked down on other people. So basically, those that go, man, I, I, I'm a churchgoer. I got things figured out. We've got this ability to look down on other people. It's written to us, right? And so what is this righteousness? What is righteousness? Well, in our world, we define it as doing what is right. Very simple definition. To be righteous, you do what is right. It's a very high standard of morality. It means you obey all the rules and all the laws. Uh, but the word that Jesus would have used here for righteousness actually is tied to the Old Testament. And, and, and basically, what Jesus, the word Jesus would have used here, and what the Old Testament believed about righteousness, is that righteousness was about man's relationship with God. And so, to be righteous, you had to have a right relationship with God. And so that's what righteousness meant to them. The word was sadaka, And sadaka is the Hebrew word for righteousness. And the Jewish people did not view being right with God something they earned or achieved. We need to hear that. They didn't think that righteousness was something you achieved, that you earned, but it was a gift that God gave them. And so when we look at this word tzedakah, when we look at the definition of righteousness that Jesus is talking about in this, it's a right relationship that is brought about by the saving acts of God. So you cannot have a right relationship with God apart from how he saved us. So the saving acts of God give us this right relationship. A, a theologian, Gerhard von Rad, says this, From the early days, Israel celebrated Yahweh, who was God, as the one who bestowed on his people the all-embracing gift of righteousness. One of the most famous places we find this example of righteousness is in Micah chapter 6. In Micah chapter 6, you have God who's upset with the Israelite people. He's upset with them because they have forgotten him. They've forgotten his saving acts that made them a great nation. And, and so he's basically, Micah is saying, what does God expect from you? Why have you forgotten God? And so in this idea of what does God expect from you, Micah says this, what can you bring to the Lord? Should we bring him burnt offerings? Should we bow before God most high with offerings of yearling calves? Should we offer him thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Should we sacrifice our firstborn children to pay for our sins? In other words, what does God expect from you? Well, you read through this stuff, thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of olive oil. Obviously, no one 
has that. No one can pay. In other words, you cannot give God enough to achieve righteousness or to achieve what he expects. So then Micah goes and switches gears and goes, you can't do that. We all understand. But here's what you can do. He says, no, O people, the Lord has told you what is good. And this is what he requires of you. To do what is right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. This very simple, these simple phrases, do what is right. Love mercy, love the mercy he gives us and offer mercy. And to walk humbly with your God. Now, if you remember in Luke 18, Jesus says he's, he's telling this story to people that think they've earned righteousness. That they think they deserve righteousness. In other words, they are not humble. You can't walk humbly with your God if you think you have done it. So this word, sadaka, it's about relationships. A relationship with God. But interestingly enough, in the Old Testament, the Jewish people believed that this righteousness was about a relationship with God, but also with other people. And I find that so interesting. It actually made me think about some of the events in Jesus' life. When you think about being righteous, we can't be righteous on our own unless we what, have a relationship with God. And we have this right relationship with people. We need God and we need people. And so I think of this, this story, you find it in Mark 2. And it's just a, the, the simple basis of the story is you have a paralyzed man who can't walk. And his friends take him to see Jesus because they think Jesus can heal him. And, and so in the story, these four friends, and I'm just going to say, I wish I had four friends like this. I, I think I do. But these are four really good friends. And, and they carry this man with his mat all the way to see Jesus. Most likely it wasn't down the street. It was probably in another town over. It, it could have been miles that they walked with their friend. And so they pick up their friend and they carry him to see Jesus. And when they get to the town, the house where Jesus is is packed full of people. Which my first response is, well, we can't wait that long. We have things to do. We're going to head back. We'll try another time. But not these friends. These friends take the man with his mat up onto the roof of the house, dig a hole in somebody's roof. Uh, that's, <laughs> I don't know about you, that's a little disturbing, but, but if, you, if you are looking for friends, find these friends, okay? Because they dig a hole in somebody's roof, and then they take their man on the mat, their friend, and they lower him down right in front of Jesus. Now, Jesus is in this house, and this man is lowered down in front of him. All the people surrounding Jesus that got under the front row were the important people. They were the Pharisees. They had all the answers. They, they had achieved righteousness. And so what's interesting was when they set the paralyzed man down in front of Jesus, obviously the man wants to walk, right? That's why he's there. But instead, the first thing Jesus says to this man is, your sins are forgiven. Now, the Pharisees sitting around are taken back by this. They don't like it at all because a paralyzed man, a man that's sick in those days was viewed as a sinner. They did something wrong. And so when this paralyzed man, a sinner, comes down and sits in front of Jesus, the first thing Jesus does 
So he forgives him his sin, and what's he doing? He's making him right, righteous. He gives him righteousness, and he makes this relationship with this man. Your sins are forgiven. And then he says, now pick up your mat and walk. This paralyzed man could not get to Jesus on his own. He couldn't walk. There's no way that he ever could have made his way to Jesus. He needed these friends to literally carry him to Jesus. And then when they set him down in front of Jesus, he could not make his relationship with God right. He had no way to forgive his own sins. God did it for him right there. And he made not only him right spiritually, but him right physically The man couldn't do it on his own. And I just think again about that song, when I cannot stand, I will fall on you. This man could, he couldn't even make it to Jesus on his own. He needed his friends. He needed God. And now we go back to Luke chapter 18, the original story. And and again, Jesus told this story to people who trusted in themselves. They trusted in their own actions, and they looked down on other people that weren't as good as them. They were missing something, and what they were missing was righteousness. It says the two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, and the other was a despised tax collector. And so this idea of going to the temple basically would be, you could imagine, be what we're doing here today. There was other people there, not just the two of them, and they came to a regular worship time. That would be prayer and public worship. And so, so they came, and, and that's the scenario. So there they come to their morning church service. And it says, the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not like other people. Cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give you a tenth of my income. And now you read that, and you go, that's not a prayer. <laughs> this Pharisee's not, not praying. He's, he's giving a sermon, or he's basically, it's an advertisement for himself in a lot of ways. And, and he stood by himself, it said, because you see, Pharisees went through a very ritualistic way to get themselves ready to go to worship. They had to get themselves perfectly clean. And if they got there and a sinner, someone other than themselves, brushed up against them or touched them, Oh, no, they had to start all over. They were unclean now. If somebody, if that tax collector brushed up against him, now he's unclean. And so he had to stand away from all the the rubble there, all the the sinners, and by himself. And so you can get the picture, and then he goes on to brag about how much he fasts and, and how much he gives. And when you look at the Pharisee, there's obviously no need for him to have a relationship with God, right? He was righteous on his own. But then we have the tax collector. He stood at a distance. He dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. The idea of beating his chest was grief. That was like being at a funeral. It was sorrow. And so here he is physically beating his chest in this act of he felt bad about the way he's lived his life. And he's not looking around at others because he assumes they're better than him. He's the complete opposite of the, of the Pharisee. And, and the word merciful, when he says, oh, God, be merciful to me. It, this, this is not the idea of God just forgive 
my sins, what he's saying here, the word is, I need you to atone or make me justified. In other words, he's saying, I can't do it on my own. He's not saying I'm a sinner and I'll do better this week. He's saying, Lord, I need you to make me righteous. I can't be righteous on my own. You see, the difference is he knows he can't be righteous without God. That's the difference between these two. And then Jesus wraps up this story and he says, I tell you, the sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And really, it's a picture of the heart, isn't it? They both went to worship. They both needed God. But by the picture of the heart, one walked away righteous, and the other one walked away only thinking he was righteous. The tax collector acknowledges that he cannot do it. He needs God. And the bottom line is you and I, we need God. We need Jesus in our lives. It doesn't matter how long we've gone to church here. It doesn't matter how much doctrine or theology you know. It doesn't matter about any of that. You need Jesus. We cannot stand without him. And if we cannot stand, we fall on him. And, and I, I told you I started rethinking the idea of the paralyzed man. And, and this week I started rethinking one of my favorite, hands down, probably my most preached about event in the life of Jesus. And it's when Jesus walked on water. And, and I love the event, not just that Jesus walked on water. You expect Jesus to walk on water. He's the Son of God. But Peter walked on water. And, and I have almost, from the very first time I ever preached on that event, is I've talked about how amazing it is that Peter walked on the water. And it really is. Because you, if you know the story, Jesus comes walking on the water. It's nighttime. There's a storm. There's some wind and waves. The disciples are afraid when they say, see Jesus. And then they discover it's him. Now, 11 of the disciples sit in the boat, and they're not, they're not even asking to get on the water. But Peter, I love Peter. Peter jumps up and goes, Jesus, if that's you, tell me to come to you. And Jesus says, come on. And, and you have to admit, it's pretty amazing that Peter got out of the boat, and he walked on the water for a short time, and you know, then he, then he failed. But I'm just going to say, if I was Peter, and I walked on water, you would know about it. I would tell you about it all the time. I mean, every conversation, every sermon, I would probably somehow slip in there, well, when I walked on water. And I might even, you know, change my name to Chris the Water Walker, something like that. I mean, because... It's a pretty big deal. I mean, walking on water. He's the only, Peter is the only one other than Jesus that walked on water. But what I find amazing is that I've looked and I don't think Peter ever mentions that he walked on water. It, when, in his books in the Bible, he doesn't say, hey, Peter, the water walker, remember what I did. Listen to what I say. That's not what he did. He, he didn't get back in the boat, and he didn't tell the disciples. He never preached about walking on water. And I go, Peter, you are missing a huge opportunity here. 
I mean, this could make you famous. This, could, this is a huge thing, but he never once mentions it. And I'm going to be honest, I've thought about that a lot. Because I, again, maybe it's the arrogance in me, but you would know if I walked on water. Because I would let you know. But then I was thinking this week with this idea of righteousness. and That we need God. And I thought, I just wonder how often we end up in situations where we fail because God wants to remind us that we need him. And Peter was a little bit arrogant. I mean, why else would he say, oh man, I'm coming to you. If you can walk on water, I'm going to walk on water. And he's all excited about it. He gets out of the boat and he's actually walking on water. And as he's walking on the water, if you remember the story, basically what happened is as he's walking, all of a sudden he realizes that these waves are kind of big and the wind is blowing and all of a sudden he gets scared. And all of a sudden he's reminded in that moment that he can't walk on water. And he takes his eyes off of Jesus and he sinks. And he sank because Peter can't walk on water. The only reason Peter was walking on water is because that Jesus allowed him to walk on water. And as he sank and in his fear, then he turns back and he reaches out. And I am just going to think he said, I need you. I need you. And Jesus reached down and pulled him up. And they get back to the boat and... Peter at that point isn't going to go, did you see me walking on the water? Because Peter realized that he can't walk on water. The only reason he could walk on water is because of Jesus. You see, we need God in our lives. If we're going to live the way that he wants us to live, we need him. If we're going to have salvation and eternal life, we need him. We can't do it. On our own. We need him. We're going to sing the song, Lord, I need you. Just worship with us. God, we confess our need to you this morning. Lord, I come. I confess. Bowing here. I find my rest Without you I fall apart But you're the one That guides my heart Sing it together, church Lord, I need you Lord, I need you It's 
Just the realization that we do need you. We need your love. We need your grace. We need you. My prayer for us is that as we go today, we are reminded of our dependence on you and our love for you. And I pray that your love will just flow through us throughout this week. We love you and we pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for being here, and I pray that you go in the grace and the love of God.